What's going on, everybody? This is Chris Darwell, your host of the Wildlife Command Center podcast. Today, we're going to do a little solo episode, basically my 2021 Colorado over-the-counter elk bow hunt recap. Basically going to go over the pros, the cons, the ups, the downs, what I learned, what did and didn't happen, and basically what I took away from it. So to start in my native state of Nevada, I did not draw anything, at least elk related or any other tag, to be honest, this year. Unfortunately, even though there's a plethora of tags available, I did get a first come first serve antelope tag horns longer than ears with a bow. So I went after that, unfortunately, just for one weekend because it like ran within weeks of my elk hunt. Like it came right up to it, unfortunately. And because I got it like that specific tag after the season started, I didn't have a ton of time to prepare or actually participate in that specific hunt, the antelope hunt. And because elk tastes a lot better, I can't really say that for sure. I haven't had antelope. My main focus was the elk hunt because, in my opinion, it's a lot more exciting. The views and, like, the experience is a lot crazier. Take it from somebody who's been on a total of four big game hunts. Really, take it from me. I've got all all the wisdom. Now I'm kidding, but I've been on that one antelope hunt, basically, and then just a few elk hunts, one of my own, and then not including this year, and one the year before that, which was a friend's tag that he was successful on. Pretty amazing stuff. And I really prefer the taste of that meat. So as well as just like the gigantic quantity of it, 200 plus pounds of it. So I wanted to really focus on putting most of my effort into that. I'm mostly a meat hunter. You know, I'm not out here to get the biggest horns or anything. I want to be able to eat on the animals that I take as much as I possibly can. So with that said, this year I was going to plan out and execute basically, you know, what everybody, whatever bow hunter needs to cut their teeth on, which is like, over the counter, any state really, but you know, everybody does the Colorado one because they have the most elk, the craziest peaks of any of the Western states, to be honest. And like everybody throws their name in that hat because it's the technically like the cheapest, the cheapest actual tag. There's a few states that are only 30 to 50 bucks more, but over-the-counter tags are limited, whereas Colorado and the vast majority of their units, it's unlimited over-the-counter tags. So I did some research, not enough, in my opinion, and you know how much much is actually enough. So I basically had like three plans, really. A main plan with two backup plans. So I picked my unit, unit 65, and scoured it. Spent some time looking into the wilderness areas, basically. Different time on Google Earth, planning out the places I was going to head to, the drainages, the peaks, etc. And I'm still very, very green at this. You know, I was, a lot of it was luck last year that I did get an elk and it was an alternate tag, basically, in Nevada. So it's a limited entry unit, meaning there's elk everywhere and there's not that many dudes that are in competition for you for the elk. And it was a bull tag, but I just got a spike. Yeah, you know, in the end, the meats taste the same. You can't eat horns, but there's a lot of pretty amazing bulls. And I even had an opportunity at a 7x7, which I whiffed. I got busted visually by another dang spike, but I might have killed that spike. So 
<laughs> I like to think I did anyway. So this year, Colorado. I'm scouring for several weeks online, Google Earth, a few other websites to figure out where to go, like looking at burns, checking out weather data. The days are dwindling down, and then I finally pick my spots. And so I head out. It takes me a few days to get there. You know, I take it nice and slow, staying at a few friends of mine's houses along the way. And then I get there on, I believe, a Friday and grab my stuff, my pack with one of my bladders full, my water bladders, weighs about 50-ish pounds. Whoa, it was brutal. You know, thankfully, I do listen to a lot of other podcasts. And so a lot of guys that like are serious about hiking into the backcountry highly recommend a good old pair of sissy sticks, <laughs> some hiking sticks. So had a pair of those that was nice and that helps tremendously. It basically puts you in four-wheel drive versus just your legs, which is really nice. So the good thing about this area is that it's received a lot of rain over the last few months, this area in Colorado. So I wasn't super worried about water access. So my initial hike up the mountain, I only had one bladder full. And so fortunately that brought my pack weight down to right around 50 pounds. So I arrive at my unit at about like three-ish, right? Get everything set up, get the truck locked, the trailhead, and I start heading up the mountain. I'm starting, I believe, at right around 8,300 feet. Oh, boy, and I ended up making camp, you know, that night at about 10,5, 10,500. That was pretty insane hike to get up to there into the wilderness area. And then the following day, I push further in, about another mile and a half in, and about another 1,000 feet of elevation gained. And so I push in that next morning, find some guys along the way. That was pretty funny. I, I passed this camp right on the trail, and then about another 45 minutes after I passed that camp, you know, it's pretty, pretty slow going. Heavy freaking pack, and you're going uphill. I hear a bugle rip out into the valley. And I'm like, oh, dude, that's totally a dude. A couple of Doug Fluties. And so I, I couldn't resist, you know. So I, I let one rip because I had stopped. That's right. I had stopped to get some water on this creek that I had seen that was right on the trail. So that was nice. So they let another one rip. And I'm like, dude, all right, all right, all right. You know, just ignore them. You had your fun. Just get your water and go back up. And then they started like cranking out some cow calls then another bugle. I'm like, oh, goodness gracious, you know. Uh, I couldn't resist. So I, I let another bugle rip. And then, like, I can hear that they're starting to get closer to me, basically along the trail that keeps going up this mountain. So I just put my stuff back on, start hiking up, and eventually I see a dude sitting behind a tree with an arrow knocked on his bow. And we start chit-chatting. And it ends up being three guys from Pennsylvania. Whew, they'd come a ways so we chit-chat a little bit, and so basically, <laughs> my plan number one, they had basically taken over, unfortunately. You know, first come, first serve. So they were in this amazing-looking area, big, sprawling, broken aspen grove, basically. So the nice thing about aspen groves that are mature on these mountainsides, they let a lot of light down to the forest floor, and so that usually creates great grazing areas for elk and, and deer and other animals. So I thought, you know, definitely number one, that's my first spot. And so they took care of that. Like, well, we're going to hunt this here. I'm like, okay, all right, all right. I'll keep pushing. You know, I had my backup spots. So 
I push from where I was there about another mile deeper into the back country. And I end up, that's about three miles in now. And, oh man. So I find this good spot, nice and high up along this ridge that's on the top of this ridge that's too steep for the elk to really want to hang out there. Because it's it's like the backside, it's like a very steep north face. It falls off. And that's where elk like to hang out during the middle of the day because it's nice and cool. But I had gone deep enough in like the surrounding areas. There was nothing that was really attractive to them. Like there wasn't a water source close by. There wasn't like a good grazing area that was close by. So I figured, okay, I'm not going to spook any elk if I camp right here. Set up camp midday. It's rough. Or like the uh, the pack was rough. So I eat some lunch, take a nap. And then I scour Onyx, which I downloaded the areas so that I could check them out without service. Found what looked to be, you know, a decent grazing area, about a mile, about three quarters of a mile to a mile away from me. And I head that way, start taking a look around. You know, it's decent. It's not bad. And I find like pretty old elk sign at the youngest, probably, or, you know, the, the earliest to when I was there maybe like a month, a month old, which is, you know, not great. And so what it looked like to me after the next, I think like two days of scouring that area is that was probably a nursery meadow, meaning almost strictly cows and their calves. It wasn't that high, you know, bulls in the summer like to be high, high, nice and high up because they don't want to be surrounded by trees that much because their antlers are growing and they don't like to bump their antlers on trees while they're growing. So it makes sense. It, it was still well into the timber line, basically. You know, the bulls like to stay up nice and high. So I do find from there, you know, on the backside of that meadow, there's like this spit this, this great glassing knob. And so, you know, it's just this bare, let me see, Western face, basically. And from there, I can get like a 280 degree view of several miles worth of land, including this great, like Southern, with a little bit Eastern and a little bit of Western face of this awesome looking giant, like hillside, spanning about two miles with a bunch of broken up aspen groves and then completely open meadows. And on the backside of that is nice dark timber. And like, it's, it's a little fingery, like a, like finger ridgy. So interspersed in that hill itself was some North facing timber where the, you know, they like to bed down. So I'm like, Oh, surely there's going to be elk in there because on the year prior, it looks exactly like what I found elk in, in Nevada. So I'm like, okay, yeah, definitely. I'm going to come back here at night. I'm going to glass the crap out of this. I'm going to find where these animals are. So the night, I'm glassing the absolute crap out of it. I don't see anything. Now, I'm not the best glasser in the land. You know, I'm, I spend time out there just glassing, but I don't find crap, you know. This is my third year, right? So I'm like, I'm okay. But the crazy thing about elk is it's like they're humongous. They're five to 800 pound animals. And usually against green, and especially in like the morning sun, not so much the afternoon sun, it's a little bit more difficult, but in the morning sun, they like gleam, they shine, they stick out. They're not like deer or any other animal because that light tan, 
which makes up most of their body. It, it's like a beacon to the trained eye. Oh, so that night, I don't see nothing. And then I think, yeah, that night on my way back to camp, right back in that nursery meadow, uh, I find another hunter. And we strike up a conversation. He's with a group of six, including himself. Six dudes that were camped like where I took basically a left on the top of that ridge. They had taken a right and gone up another few hundred feet and were camped on like the highest ridge kind of close by. So another six dudes, man. Now I'm like, by this point, I'm like three and a half, four miles from the trailhead. I, I won't say into the wilderness area. You know, I won't give myself that much credit. So, but I was like, surely, you know, the big rule is get a mile off the closest road. And then that wipes out like 90% of hunters, apparently, because they're lazy. But, and so I'm like, okay, dude, I'm going to pick this gnarly wilderness area, crazy peaks, and nobody's going to be in there. But at this point, we're up to nine hunters within like a mile and a half of where I was. So I was like, all right, dude. You know, so I chatted with this guy. We talked about where we're going to hunt the next day. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm probably just going to, you know, spend a lot of time glassing and figuring, you know, figuring out where the elk are. It's hard to glass in this area because it's so timbered. It's a lot of Colorado that isn't like Southern Colorado. Super timbered, heavy, heavy timber. So a lot of guys just rip bugles into these canyons and try and locate the bulls that way. I'm not super experienced with that. You know, I'm not the best bugler. I'm okay, but I've got a lot more glassing experience because Nevada's season the last two years has been super early in August when nothing's bugling. So we have to live by our, live behind our glass. So that next morning, you know, I go back out to that same knob. I glass for, you know, like an hour and a half. Thank the Lord. At that point, there's service on that knob. Back at camp, there was no service. That was interesting, getting to sit with my thoughts. It's not often you get to do that. Definitely had some pretty crazy realizations about myself and life and God and existential crises and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Might delve into those later, but go back out the next morning. I'm glassing. I don't see anything. And the morning is when, like, that's when the best glassing is because if you get out there before the sun hits anything, it's that perfect what people call golden hour, but technically before it, when there's no glare anywhere because the sun hasn't risen over the hills to jack with you or to pressure the elk into cover because it's on them and they're starting to heat up. So it's like perfect. And I don't see anything. And I was kind of discouraged, you know, uh, this sucks. Don't see crap. I'm like, you know, I hear some bugles, but they're totally dudes. They're Doug Fluties. You know, when you've heard a couple thousand bugles on basically on YouTube and stuff like that, unless it's like a world champion elk caller, i.e. Corey Jacobson, there's it's kind of distinct, the difference between an animal and a human, an elk and a person bugling. Although there's been some crazy weird sound in elk bugles that I've heard, but the distinction is it's kind of obvious, you know, this little screwy when people are trying to replicate it. So what I had heard up to this point, totally all dudes. And I think from there, you know, I had some breakfast and I go back to camp, look at my wounds a little bit, take a nap. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'll glass this area one more time if I'm not mistaken. Or I think what I did was 
oh, from there, I dove down into sort of where that guy said he was going to go, but like down off the high ridge that I was on and like taking a left kind of towards those that hilly area where he had gone the other way, like into the darker, deeper timber. So I go down there. It's uh, early afternoon by this point. And, you know, I'm seeing all the sign that I'm seeing is, is old, you know, pressured public land elk. You know, they, they know by the, when the first, you know, fake bugle hits the air or the first human interaction they have, they're like, oh, well, it's hunting season. Let's get the crap out of here. So everything I saw was pretty old, except for the bear sign. Lots and lots of bear sign. So that afternoon, I tried to do a cow party in this area that, <laughs> oddly enough, had a several-year-old dead elk, an elk skeleton down in the bottom of it. So I'm like, okay, well, they've been here before. Somebody's killed one before here. So why not, you know, another one? So I do a cow party for about an hour in this area, right about six o'clock. Yeah, about six o'clock, which includes ripping cow calls of like different volumes to try and simulate like old cows and young cows or calves and then making like a bunch of noise trampling brush and breaking sticks because elk themselves are really freaking loud when they're moving around and, and like comfortable. Do that for about an hour. Nothing happens, which sucks. Get back up to the trail. There's a giant fresh pile of bear scat. And I'm like, okay, that was not there on my way in. So I'm like, okay, that bear... Probably came in to check me out, found out I was a person and bounced. So leave that area, hike back another 800 feet up to the ridge, you know, back to the glassing knob. Go back out, you know, it's sunset at this point. Blast that hillside that I was talking about, the really, really good one. Still nothing. And I'm like, okay, you know, so this is day two and a half, I believe. Total two and a half days that I've been out there. And so I'm like, all right. No elk sign at this point. A lot of dudes. <laughs> we need to figure out another game plan. So I spend that evening glassing again. Don't find anything. And then like looking up on that knob when I had service, I was scouring Onyx as well, bouncing between Onyx and my glass as the sun started to go down further and further, you know, hopefully in case, you know, an elk came out. Nothing did. And so I relegated to one more morning, glassing on that knob. And then if that, if I didn't see anything, I was going to bounce out of there. And I found this really decent looking area on National Forest versus, you know, where I was, which was wilderness area. And the difference between those two is like, there's no motor vehicles allowed in wilderness areas. And National Forest land, there is like, you know, barring certain like timelines, you know. And it was surround. It was like this high ridge, super high ridge. And on both sides of this ridge, the national forest was like a sliver of maybe three miles fully in diameter. But right in the middle of that was this high ridge. And then on both sides of it, past that little sliver was like private land on both sides. I'm like, okay, dude, nice. You know, so what I'll do is follow this here trail up into the national forest a few miles <laughs> into the national forest a few miles and then like i bet elk are just bouncing back and forth between the private land well i end up being right so that morning after i glass 
I don't see crap. And then I take the afternoon or, you know, or that morning rather and bomb down off the mountain. That was a brutal downhill hike. Go back to town, grab a kind of subpar meal to be completely honest with you. And then I make the drive out to the new area, which is about 40 minutes away. Repack everything, get watered up and then hike my way in. Dude, I'm not a mile into the trail when like, so for, oh, so first off, right where I parked, I'm like, oh, dude, elk tracks right on the road. What the heck? This is crazy. And, you know, I'm half a mile in. There's, dude, there's elk tracks everywhere and, and there's cow patties, you know, so a little weird. And I find this nice roaring creek and there's tracks everywhere. I'm like, dude, this is great. I'm like, oh, man, big, hefty bull tracks. So I'm like, oh, shoot. And they were fresh. So I'm like, maybe what I should do is set up. They keep coming down in this area to water, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like looking for a place to set up. And then like to the left behind this little, the ridge of this little slope, bunch of cows. I'm like, wait a minute. Let the wheels turn, you know, click, click, click. All those tracks that I found were cow tracks. It was just cows. I'm like, okay, good Lord, whatever. So about another half mile in, there's a dude. Just chilling, chat with him. He's a super nice guy, but he tells me basically everything that he's seen over the last few days because he's been he'd spent nine days in that sliver that I was talking about, which is crazy. No opportunities. He'd seen animals and he was leaving. He was done with that area, so he was nice enough to basically point me in the right direction. He's like, "This is a great knob." This is where the elk are. They're all on private. And he's like, I spent all this time trying to call a bull down, blah, blah, blah. Could not make it happen. So I'm like, okay, all right. Well, you know, and he's like, you never know. You know, it's getting later. Further into September you get, the more ruddy the elk you get and the more like chances bulls are willing to take to go get themselves a nice hot cow. So I grab some water because he's like, this is like the last water spot. I'm like, all right, I'll fill up my bladders. And then I make the, and then being three miles from the trailhead and into where I ended up camping, which was right on the 200 yards from the top of this great glassing knob that glassed that private where apparently the elk were. Oh boy, my campsite covered in bear sign. This whole hillside was just all berries. It was just all service berry, if I'm not mistaken, and rose hips, just bare crap and sliced up trees everywhere. I'm like, oh, great. Good thing I brought the old nine. Appreciate it. Gonna sleep with that sucker on my chest. So I'm like, all right, awesome. So I get there with enough time to get camp set up and then go hit that glassing knob and figure out where the elk are. Sure enough, down there on private, right where this dude said they were, bunch of elk. I'm like, okay, cool. Hey, I got to see them, you know. Praise the Lord. I physically put my eyes on elk. That was really nice. I'm like, okay, you know, step one, at least get an eye on them. So you're saying there's a chance, basically. So go to bed, kind of make an idea for the next morning. Wake up, go back to the glassing knob, glass them all up again. I see the herd. I don't see any bulls, but plenty of cows, lots of cows and calves. So there has to be bulls in there, right? So after they head back into bed for the day, 
I bomb down off the mountain and basically get a lay of where the public and private ends and stuff like that. Saw a cow that was killed that season just a few days earlier. A bunch of ravens on it. I'm like, okay, like right on the border of the private and the public. So I'm like, okay, well, they might be callable, this or that. So at that point, it was already too late in the day. So I go back up, take a nap. And then in the evening, I go back to the glassing knob and glass them again. And they basically just stay on that same hill, stay on that same hill in private. And, you know, every so often I'm hearing bugles, but they're definitely dudes because it's coming like back from where I hiked in from. So I'm like, okay, you know, they're just throwing Hail Marys. That's why we call them Doug Fluties. Throwing Hail Mary bugles to see if anything responds. Yeah, so that evening. So I'm like, okay, the next day, I'm going to figure this out, man. We're going to call them off. Blah, 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 this and that. So (laughs) the next morning, I get up there, glass them up. Yep, they're up. And so I bomb down off the mountain, and then I go down right to the border, try and call them in, bugles, cow calls, nothing. And then, like, no responses from them. Like, dude, this sucks, blah, blah, blah. Make the hike back up to camp midday, take the nap, get to lunch, and then make the plan for the evening. What is this, day six now, if I'm not mistaken? And then so that night, go back down there, and it's, for some reason, just everything switched. And it's it's hot. Like, it's seven mid-70s, which is hot for September in these high country areas. Like, it, you know, this is like 9,000 feet that I'm at now. That evening, something changed. A cow just switched, got hot, bugling like crazy from those elk, from the actual elk. There's a big raspy bull who I never see, unfortunately, but it had to have been a six point. Big, deep, raspy. He's just ripping like crazy. Every minute to two minutes, he's letting another one rip. And there's definitely one or two satellites that are bugling up in there too. And so fortunately, because there was all this action, I actually got to put eyes on them like a little bit closer. You know, I actually got to see them with my own eyes versus through the glass because they were spread out, I guess, you know, they're chasing cows, the bulls are chasing each other, like the big herd bulls chasing the satellites. And I get a couple of cows to sort of come close to me. The main bull would rip, and then I would challenge him. And then he would bugle, and then I would challenge him again. Every so often, give a little mew, mew, give a little cow call here and there. And then they kind of get more comfortable because they can't see me with the sounds of, you know, there's a few elk over there. We'll just kind of spread out a little bit. No big deal. The night goes on. It's super exciting. You know, I've got an arrow knocked at this point because there are cows within 100 yards of me. I see a satellite chasing some cows, a decent five point. You know, I would be more than happy to take him, but I never see this herd bull. And eventually he gets further and further away from me. Every time he's bugling, I'm freaking throwing a big, nasty, you know, cursing at him and all the elk language that I can muster. He's just not having it, and he eventually gets further and further away from me. So they start to move off as much as I'm cow calling and bugling that they end up starting to move off and go back way deeper into the private. Eventually, I lose sight of all of them and he keeps on bugling, you know, deeper into the, you know, the sunset at this point. And 
he just keeps letting him rip. But at this point, he's a couple hundred yards away, and there, I mean, there's no way to to get to him. He didn't give a crap about me. I think these Colorado public land elk are, at least in this area, probably just so educated. You know, they know exactly what's BS and and what isn't, especially as, as you know, as far as vocalizations are concerned, and like the border of where they're safe and where they're not. At least in this area, you know, the, the especially that big old bull. You know, he's you know how many seasons public land elk hunting he survived he knows the ropes unfortunately or fortunately for him unfortunately for me so i believe it was uh i don't know if it was day six or seven at this point i think it was seven and at this point you know it's it's been a long time sleeping on the ground basically i'm, I'm pretty disgusting pretty tired every day is a minimum of five miles from what i looked back in my log the longest day was 13 and it's all at crazy high elevations, so you're sucking wind. You know, I live I live at okay elevation, but not eleven thousand feet. The, where I camped in that first area was eleven five. It's freaking absurd, insanely high. That my second area was nine five. Yeah, and then the glassing knob was ten. So at this point, I'm very very tired, unfortunately, and. I've put in a lot of effort and I kind of just, fortunately, I chalk it up to the game and I'm like, dude, I unfortunately did not do enough research, I think, for a plan C. Weirdly enough, you know, my computer's working now, but for the we- <laughs> the last few weeks coming up until my elk hunt, it was just not turning on properly like the screen wasn't showing anyway so the only time that I would be able to get online and and research my areas on my phone which is not a great way to do it or when my younger brother was gone and I could use his computer as you know if, if he's at home he's using his computer so day seven at this point and it's like as much as I do not want to give up I had conversations with my creator and it was it was time to get back you know i was dealing with this being a failure basically in my own mind like as well as coming to the realization that i am not just the sum of my actions it was a big was a big deal for me getting basically my ego destroyed on that mountain because i knew like okay, like i had to get back to work basically because this is our busy season for Wildlife Command Center. A lot of bats. This is like the heavy bat season when the juvenile bats are starting to fly and they're getting all lost and they're getting into people's houses. I just removed a, a bat about an hour ago from somebody's house. Young pallet bat. That was pretty cool. Love pallet bats. But I knew I, I had to get back, you know, that Michael Baran, the company owner, would always say like, you know, before you go on these long trips, make absolutely positively sure that you have all your responsibilities finished and handled before you go on these trips. And I kind of did, but also I kind of didn't, you know, a lot of what I think about that, what takes up my mind space during the whole freaking year is this elk hunt. And so it really sucked to, to have to accept I was not successful on this elk hunt, but that does not make me a failure. And that was rough. I had a rough last night on that mountain. Basically a, f- a battle between who I know that I am and who I think that I am in my own mind. Like I think I'm just 
an elk hunter and that my only validation comes from my accomplishments. And I mean, it kind of does, but, but it doesn't. You know, I, I do have, and we all do have inherent value just as individuals, not just because of our actions and our accomplishments, our goals. Like, look what I did this year. But it was a big jump from my very first big game hunt, which is a deer hunt in Illinois, which ended in failure ended in a bad shot, probably wounding a deer or killing it or and not recovering it, which led to a full year of really, really hard work, which ended in the success of my first elk hunt last year to then basically this was in my mind, and I'm still battling with it like failure. You know, a couple of days ago, I coworker and friend Viante wanted to go to the archery range and, and shoot and like even just taking out my bow and putting it in my hand, I felt like I was unworthy to have my bow in my hand because I was unsuccessful. And so it's something that I'm going to have to deal with for <laughs> probably the next year, you know, but there's plenty of other seasons, bow hunting seasons that are coming up, the fall turkey season, California bear is open already. They have California deer, but you know, I don't know. I personally don't love the taste of deer like I love elk. So, <sighs> and I think that was the last opportunity that I was going to have, at least in the 2021 season for bow hunting elk. So, the good thing is that my takeaways, I got closer to myself, closer to the land, closer to God, and realized that even though I might not come home with an elk, I could come home with something more which is the realization's wisdom that only being alone in the middle of the wilderness, nobody else with you can offer. Now, that said, I really do not plan to do it solo again next year. I want friends or family to be with me because there's nothing like that camaraderie of the Elkwoods. That's for sure. I experienced that the two years prior, nothing better than that. So I got what I needed from this experience. Wasn't an elk, unfortunately. Really wish it was, but wisdom and the experience that I did have is enough for me, at least this year. So hopefully 2021, you know, I'll still fill my turkey tags. The falconry season is still coming. Hello. Before I'm an elk hunter, through and through, I am a falconer, baby. Let's go. And then, you know, there's a lot of bears in California. So I still have more than enough opportunity to go take a bear. And that's, you know, 100 to 150 plus pounds of meat, which is the most important thing for me as well as the experiences. And there's always next year. <laughs> and I do also have a rifle elk hunt that's coming up here in about two months. So I still have another opportunity with friends and family to get some of that meat. So appreciate you guys listening to this episode of the Wildlife Command Center podcast. My little solo Colorado over-the-counter elk hunt recap. Again, this is Chris Starr for Wildlife Command Center signing off. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. God bless. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this podcast. This is Michael Baran, a.k.a. Bare Hands Baran. Make sure you go now to Discovery Plus, download our reality TV show, Bare Hands Rescue, where we are out there every day 
rescuing people from wild animals. It is entertaining, it is engaging, and it is informative. Download it today and listen for our next podcast.